Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. I have a fantastic guest with me today, Heather McGowan, who I want to introduce. You know, actually, as I was getting ready for this, I was thinking about something from Saturday Night Live this week. Because prior to coronavirus, I'd never heard of this guy, Anthony Fauci. I don't know, was I the only one or how many people had even heard of this guy? And all of a sudden, he's like the main feature in the introduction in a Saturday Night Live. I heard he was in close running for Time's Man of the Year. So, you know, the guy's been doing his same work for decades unnoticed. And all of a sudden, he's cast into the forefront by circumstance. And so isn't it interesting how certain topics that people have been working on for a lifetime all of a sudden our front and center. And my guest today, I think, is another example of that. She is Heather McGowan. She is the author of a fantastic book called The Adaptation Advantage, which I highly suggest you go get. Thomas Friedman of the New York Times refers to her as the oasis on the topic of the future of work with the implication that everyone else is a mirage and she's the oasis. She's got the real stuff. She's a keynote speaker, a futurist, and LinkedIn has named her a number one global voice on the topic of education. We want to talk today with Heather McGowan about the future of work. And to some degree, I think, Heather, maybe the future it got here now a lot faster than we thought with uh, the situation with coronavirus. But we want to hear Heather's perspective on all that because she is a deep expert. So Heather, welcome to the podcast. And we'd love it if you just start and give everyone a little bit of background. And how did you become one of the leading gurus on the topic of the future of work? Oh, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's my uh, honor and privilege to be with you today. I tell you, I didn't wish when I was a kid to be a future work strategist when I grew up. Um, but what I found in about the early 2000s, mid 2000s, was that the only people out there talking about the changing nature of work were mostly men. And um, they were talking about how technology was just going to enslave humans. And I found that deeply offensive because I think humans have so much potential that we're just starting to understand. And we can only hand things off to technology that humans have done first. Mm -hmm. So I sort of said I became a, a champion for humans in the learning-centric future of work because you all have to learn and adapt to make use of these exponentially growing technology tools. And I did it by accident. I wrote an article on LinkedIn in 2014. It was a four-part series that said jobs are over. The future is income generation. It went viral. The second part of it, 100,000 people read in 24 hours, and I started getting speaking requests from all over the world. Prior to that, I had been in consulting, in corporate consulting, and in higher ed consulting, working for presidents and provosts, because in both cases, I felt like there was a disconnect in terms of preparing our workforce. And since 2014, I've pretty much been either on the road or in the last uh, year or so virtually speaking to audiences all over the world about the changing nature of work. And it's a happy accident and a real privilege. Wow, that's an amazing story. I actually didn't know that part about your story. And I, I would imagine there's a lot of people listening that would think, boy, I'd love to write one blog post that gets me thousands of speaking requests for all over the world. What do you think it was? Because an awful lot of blog posts get written every day that don't mm -hmm. strike that kind of chord. What do you think it was about either what you said or the topic that at that moment that resonated so powerfully? 
Well, there are two frameworks, and I use visual frameworks in all my talks. So one of my degrees is in design, and I use that to help people visualize and see through their, their way through complexity, was how it used to look that basically life existed in three bands, education, career, retire. Education was the first third of your life, sufficient only to get you in the career ladder, collect a pension and die a year later. That mm -hmm. was That was the model. And it really hasn't been that way for a long time, but all of our systems are still geared towards being that way. So I say that we went from education, career, retire in discrete bands to overlapping bands of learn, leverage, and longevity. So learning is now lifelong. Leverage signifies that work and learning are a combined act. And longevity is a reality because we didn't plan for, save for, nor can we have a 30-year retirement. We shouldn't have it cognitively or psychologically. So I think it was the the power of the simplicity of the shift between one world and the other and the visuals that people immediately got that really resonated with people. And to this day, those two frameworks go into most of my talks because it's the easiest and quickest way to explain the major shifts that we're just starting to make. That's so interesting. You know, it almost makes me think of comedy. Like when Seinfeld tells a joke that everyone laughs at, it seems like part of what makes people respond to it is they're saying something that they already know. It's sort of <laughs> like bringing to the surface something that everyone has an awareness or an unease about, but nobody's really articulated it. And then when you articulate it and then no doubt expand on it further with even more, that connects with people. It's just my theory here, rather than something that's just like, oh, I never heard of that. But it may be, there's a lot of things you never heard of. But when someone talks about something that you've kind of been thinking about, but not organized in your brain the way, say, a viral blog post does, it sounds like that was a key to what you did. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels there. I actually studied um, improv at Second City in Chicago for a year. I think it's really interesting because what comedy does is create tension around something that you sort of understand, and then the punchline releases the tension, and it brings everybody to a familiar space. And I think sometimes the frameworks do that too. They sort of like, oh yeah, that that is what's going on. And oh yeah, that is how things are changing. So yeah, there are quite a few similarities there. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I certainly think it's clear that education has to continue to extend through one's career. If for no other reason, then the world is changing so rapidly. But I think you're right that this issue of career reaching back down into education is also, I just made me think when you said, I'm doing the same thing, right? I'm going, oh, that's true, you know? Because I think about my kids, my three older kids who are all teenagers, um, they're all running some kind of a business. They're selling stuff on Instagram, they're making things. And it's not just them. I think that this is so common. You know, so many kids today, instead of going and getting a newspaper route or working at, you know, I don't know, McDonald's, they're just they're just selling stuff on Etsy or whatever. And we have this generation of entrepreneurs pre-college who are already at some level of business, even if they're only making hundreds or a few thousand dollars a year. Yeah, and that's exactly what we need. We don't need any more people waiting for permission to do something. We need people to go out there and create value and find a way to capture it. Yeah, very, very interesting. So let's turn to your book. And I think to me, it's almost like you've been talking about stuff for a long time that all of a sudden, like I said about Fauci, has become the front and center thing that everybody's talking about because of course work changed so much with coronavirus. But can you kind of lay down, you alluded to some of them earlier, but what are the key principles that you see around the future of work and I wonder to what degree did what we've seen recently verify things? How much overlap is there? Are some of the components you talk about of a different nature? Because of course, we've seen all these changes around work, around things like people collaborating remotely. And of course, as well, the flexibility. Everyone's job changed very quickly in sometimes minor ways and sometimes radical ways because the way we do business changed in so many ways. Sure. So the book has three key points. So we'll start there. Um, the first is the future of work is learning and adaptation. And that is a simple thing to say. It's a hard thing to do. And it's at the, both the individual level and the organizational level. 
Second, in order to do that, you have to let go of who you think you are, as well as the way you've always done things. And that is happening rapidly right now with the, with the virus. So a lot of issues around identity. We ask little kids what they want to be when they grow up. We ask university students to pick a major and myopically focus on it when they've explored very little in life. And then the first thing we ask each other is, what do you do? So we set these occupational traps, like occupations are going to be this rigid thing, when in reality, most of us are going to have multiple jobs across multiple industries. So it's going to be marked much more by our ability to learn and adapt than to acquire any stored expertise for most of us. And then the third piece of it is leadership in this, this sort of new normal isn't about simply driving productivity, but much more about inspiring human potential. Because once you hand off everything routine and predictable to technology, which is what we're starting to do at a really rapid clip, What's left is learning adaptation, creating new value. And how do you do that with teams? You're leading teams on learning tours. In order to do that, you've got to establish trust and to use Dr. Amy Edmondson's word, psychological safety, so that your team can feel comfortable failing. They can feel comfortable raising their hand when they need help. They can signal uh, their vulnerabilities and the leader has to be comfortable with vulnerability, ambiguity, and uncertainty. So that's kind of that hallmark of the book. And the book came out in April as did the virus. <laughs> so um, it became really interesting that right about two weeks after we went into lockdown, I noticed how rapidly things were changing. Everybody who could teach online, everybody could take a course online, everybody could work from home, remapping supply chains, you know, pivoting processes, et cetera. And I wrote an article in Forbes saying that the coronavirus may be the greatest catalyst to business transformation. And uh, I suggested that I thought it would accelerate our transformation into digital. And it turns out um, McKinsey did some research in the first 60 days, we leapt forward five years in our transformation to digital. Accenture had us estimated that we were about 20% into our migration to the cloud with the remaining 80% was due to take uh, about a decade. Now it's on track to happen in five years. And just uh, about last uh, last month, World Economic Forum did their future of jobs report and said that 50% of work tasks will be done by technology by 2025, which means that 50% of the workforce will need to reskill by 2025. And previously, McKinsey had it at 14% by 2030. So it's a rapid, rapid transformation. So everything that we came up with in the adaptation advantage is happening. It's just happening in three to five weeks instead of three to five years. Yeah, very, very interesting. A lot, a lot there to unpack. You know, what you said about leadership, I find interesting. It's almost like in an industrialized world, if that's the focus, then it is about leadership for productivity because it's really about how do I get a bunch of people to do the same things better, faster, cheaper. But in a world where things change so much, then it's really about how do I inspire people to figure out on a continuously adaptive basis what they need to do next because we can't expect that in the time it takes to train people, what they need to do is possibly changed. Absolutely. So like if you look at a degree program, because I did spend quite a bit of time in higher ed to say, okay, we need a new, say cybersecurity didn't exist. We need a cybersecurity degree. It takes you about 18 months to two years to develop a four-year curriculum. It takes four years to get people to go through that curriculum. Right. And then, you know, about a year or so. So you're looking at like a decade from the time you have need to get need relief. And by then everything's changed. Most technical skills have a shelf life of about five years. So that model doesn't work. And then when you think about it, some of the stuff I'm working on now is, is I suggest that we're in the human capital era. In 1975, 84% of the value created on um, companies in the S&P 500 were from property plant equipment because we were a manufacturing economy. Mm-hmm. 2016, the last time they calculated, it was 16%. The balance is human capital. So it's human ingenuity that's creating all the value. So the SEC just last month 
now requires the first change since 1977 that human capital be disclosed in financial documents. So we have to stop treating humans like a cost to contain. That made sense when we were making stuff and we were standardizing humans and now treat them like an asset to develop. So the shareholder value era is over. You know, Milton Freeman's declaration in 1970, the business roundtable last summer, August 2019, uh, debunked that and said, you know, it hasn't worked. It hasn't created, it's created just greater inequities. They didn't come up with a term for what we're in now, but I think it's the human capital or it's the best long-term investment you can make as an organization. And it really is, it could be the kind of golden age for humans this yeah. next uh, century coming up. You know, when I talk to companies in frank private conversations about human capital development, I sense this dual feeling. And I wonder if it's something you observe and have an opinion about. On the one hand, of course, no one's going to disagree. We should train people. That's yeah. not a controversial idea. And yet I also have the sense that there is a fear about empowering people too much, about helping them grow too much. When we talk about human capital, it's a little bit of a misnomer because they're not really capital, you know, like right. leave, you know? So all of a sudden you have this question about, well, wait a minute, if I help this person grow too, too much, too far, first of all, they're going to turn around and say, well, now I'm worth a lot more money. So I want a big increase, or I will go across the street to someone else who will now pay me a lot more for all the things that you've just paid to help unleash in me and train me to do. And so you have, I find sometimes this uh, uh, discomfort with how much do we invest in somebody? Any thoughts about that mindset and even the idea of human capital and, and what is it really, if it's not capital and, or if you disagree with what I just said? No, it just brings up sort of the old adage, you know, the CEO and the CFO are talking. I don't know, I don't know where this joke came from, but the CFO says, what if we train all these people and we and they leave? And the CEO says, what if we don't and they stay? You know, <laughs> that's how you have to think about it. I mean, we have to think about talent as something that is good for us, whether they're inside of our company or outside of it. Um, one of the CEOs I interviewed for the book is a, a CEO from Canada, Carol Lehman. It's her fifth time being a CEO. So I think she's really figured it out. And I think she's a great model. And she says, you know, I want to create the kind of workplace that when people leave, no matter when they leave, they say it was the best place they ever worked. And if people come to me and say, I need to go have another experience or they've got an opportunity to make more money and I need to do that, she says, great. And they'll probably go have another experience. And then if they liked working with us, they'll come back and they'll bring all that experience back to us. So we have to have much more of an open mind about talent mobility because you actually want people to move around. You want them to have other experiences. And you, you don't want to you know, put a downward pressure on human potential because you think that's a way to keep them. And that's sort of you know crazy when you think about it. If our goal was as a society, and as companies to create more high paying taxpayers. That's good for everybody. Yeah. You know, it's funny as I'm hearing you talk about it, the thing I write most about is customers, right? How to win digital customers, et cetera, and how to make customers happy. And I believe that this whole topic of the future work is critical because, you know, the most important thing you can do for many reasons to have super satisfied customers is to have a super empowered workforce because they're going to come right. up with better ideas. They're going to provide better customer service, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like the same duality exists in some companies for slightly different reasons, but it's like, how much do I invest in my customer? You know, like the mindset that says, well, how good do, does the customer experience really need to be in order to get the customer to give me their money? Because if I make it any better than that, then I maybe I'm wasting money. You know, I could give that money back to my shareholders as a dividend. But the companies that are the most successful, and, and, and there is, you know, I can't deny a certain logic to that. 
But some things that are logical turn out to not actually work that well. And the companies that are most successful today are those that are generous with customers and are always looking to figure out how to create a better experience for their customers. And of course, as a result, they wind up with generally far higher customer loyalty and a far higher ability to you know, command a, a premium price. Have you seen anything where companies that help employees grow have any specific kind of financial outcomes? Like I know it's always helpful to be able to show that the well studies show, you know, that actually like Forrester does all kinds of studies on customers that show that when you invest more in customers, it has a positive impact on revenue, margin, profitability, share price. I don't know if that's been studied in this space or not. Yeah, I'm going to answer that in, in two ways. First, I think we ought to be thinking, we got to reframe our thinking about whether it's customers or employees as it's a relationship, not a transaction. So would you, you know, husband, wife, daughter, friend, would you say, how much do I have to do to keep this relationship as good, but I don't give too much because I don't want to give more than I have to in my marriage, in my friendship, in my parenting, whatever it is. You don't think like that. And why do we when we come to business? Probably do. Why? Well, some people do that. We wouldn't want to be in relationships with them. If they, if I'm with you, though. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. So we first, we need to shift our thinking like that, because when people come to me all the time, they're like, what's the, how do I prove the ROI in this? And like, if you're looking to prove the return on investment, investing in a human, you've already lost the argument. But for those people who need to make the argument, Guild Education, which is a group I've done a uh, talk for before, they are um, the equivalent of managing your education for a corporation, the way uh, companies manage healthcare for you. And they say that, you know, having a skilled, constantly skilled workforce is important. So we'll manage all that for you. So they broker relationships with universities, et cetera, and give you pricing. They do Walmart and Disney and Taco Bell and a whole bunch of big companies. And they have it. It's something like every dollar you invest, you get like $2.50 back in productivity, however that's measured or, or revenue growth or whatever it may be by investigating people. So if you need the number, I think Guilds recently did a study, they give you the number. But again, if you want to have the kind of employees and the kind of customers that stay through not just one product cycle or not just one fiscal year that have long-term relationships with you, you would do anything you could to make them as happy as possible, just like you would the relationships in your life. And you wouldn't worry about how little can I give them so I can give more to my shareholders and keep more to myself. That's a race to the bottom. Yeah. You know, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that transactional mindset, even though there's probably people who would deny that. But it, it's prevalent. It's super prevalent. And I think it's true for customers as well. And the truth is, I think it is perhaps inherent to the very foundation of the way corporations are structured because CEOs are hired on a transactional basis. CEOs are hired to increase the share price of a public company. And that's kind of it. And yeah, large- and that's and that's our problem. That's exactly what our problem is. We've been running quarter to quarter. One of the things that I say is that it's like we've been driving in a car and we've been looking in the rearview mirror. And the most, you know, visionary companies out there might be looking over the hood, but now technology sped the car up. We're not in first gear anymore. We're in fourth and the coronavirus put us in seventh, (laughs) if there is such a gear, you know, sixth at least. Uh, So we're going so fast and we need to look further out on the horizon. So even when it comes to things like reskilling, reskilling is just playing catch up and we're going to be doing it forever. That is codifying and transferring the predetermined skills and existing knowledge you know about because you need more of an X. But that doesn't get you to the next business model. That doesn't get you to the new horizon. So that's why I say we got to invest in human capital more broadly for people to explore the things you don't know, not just to execute on the things you do know. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, with coronavirus, 
You just prompted maybe my thinking to organize a little more about something because one of the things I actually led a, a roundtable last week that I, I did a live cast on earlier about continuity planning. Now that might seem like an unrelated topic, but I'll, I'll explain why I'm mentioning it. And, and really the topic was, did our continuity planning fail us? Because most companies have a process where they say, well, what would we do if there's an earthquake? What would we do if there's a hurricane? And they have all these scenarios they've planned for and nobody planned for what do we do if there's a pandemic? So we plan for the scenarios that we think are gonna happen but the reality is that there's this much larger universe of possible scenarios that are less likely. A hurricane is much more likely to happen in the next three years than, say, an insect infestation or, you know, a, a massive global power outage that lasts for weeks or something like that. But those are in the category like a pandemic. And the overwhelming thing that we heard coming out of this roundtable was the need to realize that there's two sides to continuity planning. And one is, of course, have your step-by-step -step plan about what to do if the likely things happen. And I think that's a little bit like the more industrialized skill training that you're talking right. about. And of course, we still do need to train people on, you know, how do you use our time and expense management system or whatever else. But that's probably the less valuable. And the more valuable is how do you train people to be ready and to be agile? And how do you put systems yeah. in place so that we can't scenario plan for the zombie apocalypse, you know? because it's just super unlikely, but there's a hundred other things that are also super unlikely. And I think it's in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where they say something like, and I'll probably get this wrong, something like the odds of any one improbable thing happening are very low, but the odds that something improbable will happen is very, very high. Yeah, I mean, you know, last fall, to your point on sort of uh, risk management is essentially what you were talking about. We ought to be looking much more at climate related issues. In, and actually, the pandemic is climate related because deforestation and uh, population growth has led to more human animal interactions and a rise in zoonotic illnesses because we had plenty of warning shots before coronavirus. We had H1N1, swine flu, MERS, we had Asian flu. We had a number of those outbreaks. And um, this one, you know, actually Fauci said when this one first uh, came out, he expected it to take six months to travel the globe and it did it in under a month. And then this fall, Lululemon, the CEO of Lululemon had more stores closed because of hurricanes, wildfires and floods than the virus. Really? Mm hmm. So we're not even paying attention to the bigger threat that's looming, which is climate change and how that's impacting, you know, greater storms, greater fire, you know, wildfires, et cetera. And so we had wildfires in the West and we had hurricanes coming up the, the Gulf, closing so many more stores than just lockdowns in yeah. uh, September and October. And not to mention civil unrest. Yep. Civil unrest. Another one that, you know, we don't, we don't typically plan a lot for, but yeah, we had uh, another thing with the uh, president of, um, uh, forget now, major retail chain. And he was saying that, you know, that was one of their major, major problems was store, store damage and closing from civil unrest this past year. These are all um, addressable things. Mm. They all well, come back to human behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're speaking to somebody who's in a role, maybe not even in charge of, training because often those aren't the people who have that much authority uh, in an organization they're, they're usually not the people who can drive transformational change if you're speaking to somebody who's a ceo or a cmo or a cio or yes. a CEO or whatever of a large organization and and they say all right all right I, I get it but it also feels a little overwhelming like a sea change what would be a few things you could say okay well start here here's what you can do here's what you should go back and try to uh, do what here's what your 2021 new year's resolution should be if you accept the premise but aren't sure what to do next take all your existing teams take all your direct reports and, and this is your message to them in their teams are you getting the maximum human potential out of all the people you already have employed chances are no and if you're not why aren't you 
And, you know, it's not always cost. It's sometimes it's setting the conditions, putting them in the right teams, getting them the right hours. You know, sometimes it's, we got to do a lot more for moms out there. There are a lot of moms who are completely paralyzed by how much work they have to do carrying a generation forward right now. If you did that one thing, if you only did that one thing, what would you do for every working mother and father? But it's too much of it's falling on the mother. But how, what would you do for every working parent right now, especially in this pandemic, to make their lives easier, to get that loyalty back in spades? What would you do to help them in their 24 hours a day, their whole life, and help them be in the conditions? It's not the number of hours they work. It's the number of you know clear thoughts they have, good insights they have, breakthroughs they have. Those things are so much more valuable. But what we do is we be, we're still in that industrial mindset of measuring time. So maybe you need a working mother or father who works 15 hours a week instead of 40 crappy hours a week when they're exhausted. Look at that. How can you unleash as much human potential as possible on your existing team? And then let's look at the fact that the past year has laid bare, um, as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, we find out who's swimming naked. Uh, this pandemic has let us know that we have racial injustices that are undeniable. We have structural poverty. Um, we have, and this has been proven in the last couple of years, you're better off being born rich than smart in this country. And that is a complete loss of potential. It's a loss of social mobility and it hurts all of us. So do the best you can. What can you do with your existing team? And then when you look to add your team, where are you looking? Are you looking in the old places with the old hurdles that don't really make any sense? Or are you unleashing more social mobility? Like I'm really uh, impressed by what uh, Citibank is doing. They did a, they had their chief economist do a study and found out that racism in this country cost us $16 trillion between 2000 and 2018. Between jobs people didn't get and entrepreneurs that weren't funded, people who didn't get mortgages to buy homes and build equity. And so they are very committed to building black wealth. Also, there's a number of other CEOs, I can't remember the name of all of them now, who said they want to find millions of jobs for Black people in this country to get into the professional ranks when we've created artificial barriers. That's lost human potential. It's not about leveling the playing field and making it fair. It's building an economy for all of us, made building a stronger economy. So that would be my lesson to CEOs. Diversity is a strength, and putting humans as humans first is your greatest potential value creation. Uh, inspiring. I can see why so many people bring you out to be a keynote speaker. So Heather, if someone wants to find out more about you, I'm assuming they can easily find your book uh, wherever wherever books are sold near you. Yep. Uh, but um, anything else they should know about how to get in touch with you, how to learn more about uh, what you do? You can Google me. Lots of stuff pops up. Um, but heathermcgowan.com, I try to capture as much stuff there as I can. And you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I've got 20 some odd thousand followers. I post what I'm reading. I share it with other people because I just want to help grow all of us. So reach out to me on LinkedIn, follow me on LinkedIn, drop me a note, stay in touch. Uh, if you got anything you think I should read, anything I think I've missed, I'm learning too. So check my blind thoughts and uh, correct me on anything you think I might be wrong about. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here, Heather. The book is The Adaptation Advantage. Go find it on Amazon or wherever you like to get books. It is an awesome read. I thank you so much for being here, Heather. Really, really food for thought. You've got my mind spinning on a number of different topics. So I really, really appreciate it. Delight, delight to speak to you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, have a great day. And thanks everybody for listening to the Winning Digital Customers podcast. If you're not, don't forget to subscribe and we will see you next time.